in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and you just heard the last lines from the Three Penny Opera, right? Uh, I felt that um, we should talk about uh, Bertolt Brecht for a minute today. Uh, today is Tuesday, September the 12th, 2006, and uh, yes, uh, the last lines of the Three Penny Opera are really, if you translate them from the German directly, they simply say, those in darkness drop from sight. Uh, this translation, the one that we have on the theme song, is uh, drop the shadows out of sight, when actually what he wrote is those in darkness drop from sight. Now, there's a new translation of Mother Courage, at least it's a translation that I haven't heard yet, by David Hare. And it's opening at the Berkeley Rep this week. Um, see, I can see it tomorrow night. There's a press night, and I think it opens this weekend. Call and find out what the dates are. Uh, it's, uh, yes, yes, Berthold Breck, writing back in the day in the Weimar Republic in Berlin between the World Wars. You remember Brecht. He was the playwright with the political punch. He was the one that said that art is a hammer with which to shape society. Um, now, um, I'm not quite sure <laughs> how closely, well, I'm not sure whether I believe all that, but Mother Courage was a play that I grew up on, and I, I think maybe it's time to give it a new slant. In any case, the play is all about war and woman, and that never changes. You know all about the essentials. Let me begin today with um, two poems from an Armenian poet. I have a book called The Other Voice, Armenian Women's Poetry Through the Ages, translated by Diane Deer. I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce her last name. It's D-E-R hyphen H-O-V-A-N-E-S-S-I-A-N. Hovanesian, I guess. In any case, I have two poems. The first one I want to read is for 9-11. It's called Forgetting. Uh, it's by a poet, a very young poet named Lilith. Uh, she was born in the late 60s, and she uses this single name the way her mother does. Her parents are poets, and uh, she just calls herself Lilith. This poem is called Forgetting. I saw your name painted everywhere over walls, over asphalt, sidewalks chalked everywhere. I heard your name everywhere, in the wind, 
that disheveled my hair. The syllables of your name once filled my world with your face. It is autumn now and raining, and all the chalk marks are erased. The rain is removing your name and your face. Five years isn't very long in my scheme of things, but for the world it's a long time. The next poem by Lilith is titled, It's War. My city, worn and weary, you have become a black-clad woman, watching, head lowered, funeral after funeral, shaken and shaking with the pain of loss. Your leaves, drained of color, fall into wet mirrors. It's said that Satan marks at birth the foreheads of the doomed. Today there is a stillness everywhere on your streets, on the lips of the surrounding hills. My God, our Lord, when will you lift off this fate written on our foreheads? Remove the devil's black fingernail, which writes such atrocious destinies. Save us from further crucifixion. Once again, these are Armenian women's poems. It's a little anthology that um, I hope to read more from, and perhaps we can give away copies when it's time for Marathon. Uh, it's a beautiful volume. Armenian women poets all gathered together for the first time. Uh, the wonderful literature the Armenians had. Um, now, before I forget, I have a thousand separate things here today. I wanted to remind uh, KPFA listeners that uh, you can go over to Northgate Hall on the north side of the UC campus today at 5.30 and meet the author of this new biography of I.F. Stone. Once again, it's The Life and Times of Rebel Journalist I.F. Stone, written by Myra McPherson. Myra McPherson was on um, NPR this morning. Uh, last name is spelled M-A-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N, Myra McPherson. And she's written a uh, huge... Uh, uh, biography of the late Izzy Stone. Izzy died in 1989, writes, the title of the book is All Governments Lie. When asked what you need to know about a government, Izzy Stone just said, you need to know that all governments lie. Uh, anyway, today she will be uh, over at Northgate Hall at 5.30. That's Tuesday... September 12th at 5.30 Northgate Hall on the north side of the UC campus. And uh, she'll be reading from her book and answering questions about this wonderful iconoclast and mega muckraker, I.F. Stone. And I think just, just for fun, I wasn't going to do this, but let me just read you 
one page here of the I.F. Stone book. I, I love all the stuff about Stone and Socrates. Uh, I.F. Stone, uh, let's see, like me, he adores Jefferson and Socrates, but uh, he manages to put Socrates into uh, modern times. But no, let me read this something important here. Uh, of course, Izzy Stone was Jewish and uh, the contradictions uh, still with us. Yes, he died in 89, and this applies still. Uh, back in 1988, he was still trying to deal with the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict. He was saying, quote, I just can't understand why, why one is allowed to be sympathetic towards one's own fellow refugees, but not to open your heart to another people's refugees. Palestinian Arabs are a wonderful part of the Arab world. They supply intellectuals, professionals, engineers, scientists. It would be so wonderful if we could feel about them as brothers. I don't see how it is possible to uphold the right of a Jewish state in Palestine and then deny the same right to the Palestinians to determine what they want to do with the occupied territories. It runs against everything that's best in the Bible and in the Jewish tradition. There is a saying in Yiddish, if you don't have compassion, how can you call yourself a Jew? I think the test of that in the Middle East is the Jewish attitude toward the Arabs. If we harden our hearts and shut our minds to injustice, we will become a very different people. Whatever the reaction of the Arabs is, the Jewish people themselves would be changed. Everything that comes from the diaspora, toleration, separation of church and state, brotherhood of peoples of all different beliefs and backgrounds, these things are being trampled on in Israel, I'm sorry to say. If something isn't done pretty soon, the lines may harden. Each side will destroy its own moderates. Then they will move on to destroy each other. And the biography goes on to talk about uh, Izzy Stone still making waves at the age of 80. And uh, let's see. He's still talking here about Israel and, uh, yes, the fact that Arafat and Arab leaders did not recognize the state of Israel right. He says Israel wants them to recognize Israel, but they refuse to give a quid pro quo. You can't negotiate peace by telling them who they should accept as their leader. They are up against the same plight that surrounded European Jews after World War II with no state, no passport, no recognition. They need a state of their own, a right to self-determination, and the respect that comes with being recognized. Uh, let's see, Stone at the San Francisco City Arts and Lectures to the audience. He said, look, he said, there's a risk in peace, there's risk in war, there's no way to live without risk. I believe the risks of peace and conciliation are superior to the risks of war and hatred. It's just that simple. Now, uh, actually, though he was booed and shunned by some Jews, Stone nonetheless derided a group of pro-PLO leftists for an oversimplified and wrong-headed view. He exclaimed, Israel was a great experiment. 
Stone's position was not without personal consequences. Uh, she goes on to describe um, slights uh, that his son suffered and, uh, oh, little things when he became a star on Dick Cavett's TV show. <laughs> yes, uh, there were problems uh, towards the end of his life, Izzy Stone recalled. I was this hero when I spoke up for Jewish refugees, and then when I began to speak up on Arab refugees, I was not kosher any longer. His public pattern was to make light of criticism. He said, I think it's a basic law of human history that anybody that tries to be a good human being is going to get in trouble sooner or later with his own tribe. <laughs> However, Stone once said in private, that being attacked by Jews was, quote, just about the only thing that hurt my feelings all those years. Uh, let me read just one more passage here because uh, the biographer goes on to explain that uh, Izzy was capable of crying and losing composure when giving speeches about the troubles between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Uh, let's see. Here it is, yes. Izzy uh, gave a speech here. He's, he said, I read a terrible story of a bulldozer brought up by the Israeli army in an obscure village I'd never heard of, where a suspect sought by the army was suspected of taking refuge in an Arab farmer's olive orchard. The army brought out a bulldozer and proceeded to level the gardens and the orchard. And the climax of the story was the difficulty it had in dealing with one olive tree. Stone fell silent before his New York audience and then began haltingly, his voice strangled with tears. It, it didn't want to give the olive tree it took a lot of work to put chains on the olive tree and link it up to the bulldozer and finally tear it up. Stone again fought back tears. The olive tree seemed like a symbol because in the background of this dispute are certain elements in the Israeli community who would like to uproot the Arabs and drive them out. Drive them, yes, as well as uproot the olive trees, my God, Stone exclaimed. Have we so quickly forgotten about the Hitler occupation of Europe? Have we so quickly forgotten that the Geneva Pact, which now governs the treatment of occupied populations and territories, is an effort to prevent what happened in occupied Europe? And he goes on, uh, there are many things in this section, I think of... Uh, the very natural fears of the Israelis, because, of course, they are a small group. What is it? I think there's only some scholar told me 15 million Jews left on the planet. And if history is numbers, uh, never mind, never mind. This book um, by Myra McPherson is called The Life and Times of rebel journalist I.F. Stone. Title is All Governments Lie. It's a big hardback now from Scribner's. 
and she will be again over at the uh, 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 North Hall uh, on the north side of the campus at 5.30 today. And if you want to go check it out, you can go and listen to what she has to say. Uh, I wanted to mention to you today, uh, without fail, the September 11th issue of the New Yorker magazine. Once again, let's see, there's another issue already on the stands, the one with the Bill Clinton piece in it. Uh, the editor, David Remnick, was on uh, the radio this morning talking about that article. This This piece, it's an amazing issue. The cover of the 11th September New Yorker is white. If you remember five years ago, uh, after the Twin Towers uh, were struck down, there was a black-on-black cover of the New Yorker. This one has a guy on a tightrope walking in the air on the white cover inside. Um, there's a, a second cover in which you have the same guy on the tightrope, but he's walking over the two spaces, the holes, uh, the site uh, of the Twin Towers. Interesting what the artist tried to do there. Uh, In any case, the two articles are about the future of Islamic Jihad. Uh, One is by Lawrence Wright and the other is by George Packer. Lawrence Wright tells us about uh, the plans that Jihad has for us. It's not good. Yeah, I plan to be in charge by 2.20. The second article is much more hopeful. It's by George Packer, and it explains uh, how there might just be a uh, reformation going on inside of Islam and how that might be the way of the future and how that might uh, help us out. Anyway, this week... Uh, Lawrence Wright was on C-SPAN. His article in this in New Yorker is called uh, The Master Plan. That's the plan of the jihadis to uh, take over the world. He has a book out as well. It's titled The Looming Tower. Uh, the Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. Now, the interviewer, a uh, guy from the Arab American Foundation, uh, the interviewer compared this book to the report of the 9-11 Commission, pointing out that the 9-11 Commission report missed some of the key players, some of the background information, you know, the context, the motivations, the uh, issues concerning Islamic Jihad, the environment, uh if you're interested in the machinations and inner workings of this cult, uh, if you want to know personal details, life histories of these demonic and dispossessed men, you can check out uh, both the article and the book. The book, once again, is The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. Uh, <laughs> the article, The Master Plan, indicates that uh, the year of the caliphate will be 2020. Now, I'm not, I don't mean to joke or laugh, because obviously some of these guys believe it. They see before them the victory of an Islamic army. And let's see uh, what will happen when they take over. Right, 
Uh, here is a quote. When the Islamic army is victorious, a falsehood, quote, falsehood will end. The Islamic State will lead the human race to the shore of safety and the oasis of happiness. And I am Marie of Romania. Okay, the big question is always, uh, uh, what is a holy war all about? Um, we ask the big question, does God's light guide us or blind us? Yes, I will repeat that. Does God's light guide us or blind us? I think after September 11th, we were quite blind. At least, I mean, the powers that be, not the, not the folks who got good sense. Um, let's see, the second article in the New Yorker is a letter from Sudan. It's called A Moderate Martyr, and it's about uh, a Gandhi-like uh, Islamic teacher who was uh, naturally um, killed, executed, uh, uh, but it gives a radically peaceful vision of Islam. He, uh, yes, he seems to have believed, uh, his name is T-A-T-A-H-A. Yes, he seems to have believed that Islam can survive the Islamists, you know. I have always asked myself whether Christianity could survive Christians. What was it George Bernard Shaw used to say? We should have had socialism long ago, but for the socialists. Anyway, the Arab world is only the uh, core of jihadism. Uh, the vast majority of Muslims on this earth uh, live, oh gee, all around the periphery. They live from Senegal to Indonesia. Actually, I think Indonesia has the most Muslims of any particular state uh, now, it's pretty hard to categorize one million Muslims. It's kind of like trying to categorize the almost a billion Christians around the globe. Uh, now, it's obvious that just like the, the uh, Protestant Reformation, the religious Reformation in Europe back in the 16th century, uh, this Islamic Reformation is going to be a bumpy ride. Uh, Luther was not a fun guy, you know. <laughs> It was, it was grim. Let me see. I want to read you just a little bit. It's, it's so hard to cram all this into half an hour. I just want to read you a little bit. This section on the moderate martyr. Uh, get this copy of the New Yorker and check out these two fabulous articles because, uh, uh, we need, we need to know what's going on. And I know for me, sometimes I just get exhausted trying to keep all the names straight, but you get the gist of things. Uh, obviously, we haven't been paying attention the last couple of decades. Uh, let's see now. Okay. This is George Packer's article, The Moderate Martyr. He's talking about the possibilities for reformation, and he says that this guy, Taha, T-A-H-A, Born 1909, I guess, um, executed in 1985. His object is to um, make the uh, the uh, religious texts uh, accessible. It's going to allow Muslims to affirm their faith without having to live by inhumane codes, you know. 
get rid of all that 7th century nonsense. Um, is there one reference here to to some poor fellow, a vendor who sells falafel, who was executed, killed, because falafel was not uh, uh, made or sold in the 7th century, right? Okay, he talks about two periods in uh, uh, Muslim history. The first one is uh, the the early phase in Mecca and then later in Medina when things got kind of sour. Uh, the Mecca phase seems to me kind of like early Christianity. You remember when the women did all the... the um, you know, they passed out the food and then we turned it into those dry wafers. Anyway... Uh, the Quran, it says, was revealed to Muhammad in two phases. First of all, in Mecca, where for 13 years he and his followers were a besieged minority. Then in Medina, where the Prophet established Islamic rule in a city filled with Jews and pagans. The Meccan verses are addressed through Muhammad to humanity in general. They're suffused with a spirit of freedom and equality. Now, according to Taha, T-A-H-A, that's our martyr, they present Islam in its perfect form as the Prophet lived it, through exhortation rather than threat. In Taha's most important book, a slender volume called The Second Message of Islam, published 1967, dedicated to humanity, he writes that the lives of the early Muslims in Mecca were the supreme expression of their religion. They consisted of sincere worship, kindness, peaceful coexistence with all other people. Okay, now we've got a law professor at Emory University, uh, uh, Abdullahi An-Nam, N-A-I-M, He's translated the book into English. In the introduction to this book, he writes, Islam being the final and universal religion, according to Muslim belief, was offered first in tolerant and egalitarian terms in Mecca, where the prophet preached equality and individual responsibility between all men and women without distinction. No distinctions on the grounds of race, sex, or social origin, but that message was rejected in practice. Yes, in Medina, the prophet and his few followers were persecuted, forced to migrate to Medina. Some aspects of the message changed, yes. Mm -hmm. The message was rejected in practice. Okay. The second message of Islam, right, wherein Muhammad propagated verses of peaceful persuasion during his Meccan period in Medina, the verses of compulsion by the sword prevailed. Yes, in Medina, things got, yes, full of rules, coercion, threats, including orders for jihad. That's where it comes from, right? And in Taha's view, they were a historical adaptation to the reality of life in a 7th century Islamic city-state in which there was no law except the sword. Now, I don't want to upset people or offend by comparing this hope for reformation within the Islamic religion with any uh, uh, 
the comparison, of course, is to our, to the Protestant Reformation. I was about to say ours. I have no uh, religious affiliation of any kind, and I'm certainly not prepared to say anything about uh, religious faiths, whether or not they uh, are useful or not. Um, I used to enjoy the arguments that I had in uh, college. There were two sets of professors, the ones who thought that the world would have been better without Christianity and uh, then the ones who thought that the world would have been better if we had remained, uh, well, you know, the the pagan choice. Uh, I think that, uh, what is it, it's like corporations today, they do feed somebody uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, let's see, the churches, the Christians, sometimes there was sanctuary, uh, Catholic charities are feeding an awful lot of people in New Orleans this week. <laughs> Who's to say? Check out your New Yorker for September the 11th. Two fabulous articles on where we're going with this Islamic Jihad. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In darkness From the ones Who Walk in light Light them up Boys There's your picture Drop the shadow Out of Sip local wines and sample appetizers, desserts, and other delicacies during the 15th annual Woman of Taste Gala held on Saturday, September 30th at the Oakland Museum. 